this Sunday, today, is the first uh, Sunday of Advent. And so the four Sundays prior to Christmas is when the Advent season begins. And we aren't uh, terribly liturgical here in, in the way that we do things. We're very non-denom, but there's a lot of value to looking at some of the church traditions, especially things that you see founded in the fourth century or so, and, and seeing how the church celebrates the season of Christmas and the leading up to Christmas. And there's really four weeks of focus that lead up to um, Christmas and, and, and the celebration of the birth of Christ. But the celebration of Advent, which means arrival, by the way, if you ever like Advent, it means arrival. And so when you celebrate the season of Advent, it's not just celebrating the arrival of Christ as a child who came in human form and died on the cross for our sin. There, there's a, a, a retrospective looking back celebration of the birth of Christ, and there's also a forward of his second coming. Because we recognize that we're looking forward to the second arrival, the second advent, which is the coming of Christ. And so there's this expectation. And so the first week of advent is actually focused on the waiting. Not only the waiting for Christmas Day to come where we celebrate, but the waiting for the return of Jesus. And so it's an awesome season for us to kind of focus our hearts and our minds on the expectation and the waiting for Jesus to come and not to become weary in the waiting. We are not to become weary in the season of waiting as we anticipate the coming of Christ. And so it's a great reminder, and um, we have some really good readings to, to recommend, and I have more than one, but the one that I'm going to read this Advent is called God is in the Manger, and it's Reflections on Advent and Christmas by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so it's a collection of just his writings focused on Christmas time and some of his letters and excerpts um, from prison when he was in prison during World War II. And many of you probably know he was um, murdered um, right at the end of World War II for his, um, he was a, a theologian, a pastor, but he was also involved in the plots to assassinate Hitler, to remove him from power and to save um, hopefully thousands, they or hundreds of thousands of people at that time of Jewish people. Um, this is an excerpt from the week one reading that I'll be beginning with my family uh, tonight. But this is an excerpt from that. And, and Bonhoeffer says, it's still not Christmas, but it's also still not the great last advent, the last coming of Christ. Through all the advents of our life that we celebrate runs the longing for the last advent when the word will be, see, I am making all things new. And he's quoting from Revelation 21. And so Bonhoeffer is just describing this anticipation of Christmas. I don't know about you guys, but I love Christmas season. I love Christmas season. I love the holiday. I love seeing people. I love giving gifts. I like getting gifts. I like doing all of those things. I like doing Christmas Eve service with you guys and the Christmas parties. But in that anticipation, that waiting, that excitement, especially as I watch my kids, there's this excitement and this anticipation for something greater, something more. And, and that's something that I really want to encourage us to remember in this week as we focus on waiting. And, and this, this is totally optional for you guys to do. But for us as my family, as we think about the waiting of Jesus coming, there's this awesome anticipation that gives us perspective. And inside of this, this, um, reading that I'm going to do with my family tonight is a letter from Bonhoeffer in Tegel Prison in 1943. And he's talking about how he um, can't see his family. He can't see his fiance. He's not going to be with anybody. He'll be alone. And he's talking about how the anticipation and the vision of what's yet to come, the kingdom of Christ, is what motivates us to continue on, to see beyond what we're going through. And he says, even though the world we're living in right now is in ruins, we can have anticipation, hope, and joy in the expectation of a coming kingdom that will never crumble. And that connects to so much of what we've been studying in Daniel, doesn't it? 
so much of it, the coming kingdom of Christ that we long for. That's where our hope lies. So even if we're in, and how how uh, pertinent is it for us to remember this now, even in the world that we're in that feels like we are moving very quickly towards ruins, <laughs> like ruined people and, and, and all the things that we, we don't want to see deconstructed in our country that, that may very well be, it can start to feel a little hopeless. It can start to feel a little dark, but it's not because the kingdom of Christ is coming. And that's the beauty of the advent is that we recognize he has both come and will come again. So let's pray together and BJ is going to come share, but I just want to kind of set the tone for this advent season, encourage you guys to do some reading and encourage you to, as we march towards Christmas, have your eyes not only on the manger, but on the coming kingdom that we're waiting for still, that we know is coming. Just as sure as Christ came and died on this earth and rose again, he will return. And that's exciting stuff for us. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this season. I pray, God, that it'll be so much more um, of an impactful Christmas season for us. Lord, as we recognize that we have so much to hope for when we look to you when our eyes are on you. And so, God, I pray for this church, for this ministry. Lord, as so many will watch this on YouTube and more will watch it second service live online, Lord, I pray that you would open our ears to hear your word and, Lord, to have that hope and that joy and that anticipation of your coming kingdom as we read your word. And, Lord, especially in this season of Advent as we remember, Jesus, that you came to this world and you came as a child. You came as a child and you were humble and you were lowly and you showed us how to do life in a way that honors the Father. So Lord, continue to instruct us through your word this morning. Walk us through this process and keep our eyes on you in this season, Lord, as we celebrate Christmas. Keep our eyes on you to celebrate you, what you have done, and your coming kingdom and what you will do. We thank you for these reminders and ask that you would strengthen us with them in Jesus' name. Amen. You will probably need to boost me because I, I don't have your pipes. <laughs> Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We're here. Took us, uh, took us a while to get back, but we're here. Daniel chapter 8. I'm excited because last time I spoke here um, was chapter 5. And it was about Belshazzar and what happened to Belshazzar, rather Belshazzar's ending, uh, which wasn't a pretty one, wasn't a pretty one at all. He got drunk, went frat partying, and then died. So that was awkward, but we're back. We're back in the third year of his reign. So we get to see, um, teleporting back in time a bit, we get to see some things that happen, but not really to him. We get to see some things um, that happened to um, Daniel, and I wanted to open this study with a quote, which is funny that um, Mike mentioned Bonhoeffer. Um, I didn't plan that. I didn't know he was going to talk about Bonhoeffer today. But I pulled a quote from uh, my favorite Polish spinster, uh, which, <laughs> hey, she self-describes as a Polish spinster, self-identifies, if you will. And she says this, some knowledge is too heavy. You cannot bear it. Your father will carry it until you are able. It's Corey Ten Boom. She was taught that by her father when there was a passage she didn't understand and it involved a type of sin that um, parents didn't want to talk to their young daughter about yet. And he was carrying a heavy briefcase and he says, would you hold this for me? She couldn't hold it. 
And so that's when he told her, he says like, he said, that briefcase is too heavy for you. So your father, myself, will carry it for you. And just like that, some knowledge is too heavy to bear. But I have the knowledge. I'll carry it for you until you're able. And so she learned that through life, that that was something she needed to give to the Lord, that there's some knowledge that is too heavy to bear. There's some things we don't understand. There's there's some things that overwhelm us in this life. And God is willing to carry that until we're able. And he knows us inside and out. In the previous chapter, chapter 7, we got to see the vision that ended with a prophecy about the Antichrist. The Antichrist was brought up in the end of that uh, prophecy. The vision was given to Daniel in the first year of Belshazzar, um, his reign. His reign was, um, yeah, so two years ago. And here in chapter 8, we now see a vision that was given in the third year um, of his reign. And this one uh, is not end times prophecy, but rather it is a prophecy that's already been fulfilled. We've already seen it. It's already happened, but it's going to allude a little bit to, it's going to parallel, if you will, to some end time stuff. But what's actually given in the vision is indeed um, fulfilled already in history. We've seen it. Um, this passage is also where Daniel resumes writing in Hebrew. Interestingly enough, so he transitioned from Hebrew to Aramaic, starting in Daniel chapter two, verse four, all the way through Daniel seven twenty-eight. It was all written in Aramaic, which biblical scholars believe was because that was aimed towards um, a specific people. And now that he's moving back to Hebrew, uh, this would be aimed more towards his own people. That was uh, the, it was intended for the Israelites. That's the belief. So let's dive into this because we have a lot to go through. I feel like Willy Wonka. Have you seen the old Willy Wonka? And he would always say, <laughs> we have so much time and so little to do. And then he was like, wait, reverse that. We have so much to talk about. We don't have enough time for it. So let's dive into this. There's a ton of prophecy, ton of little details we've got to work out. So we're going to dive in. Verse 1, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me. Daniel, after the one uh, that had appeared to me earlier, and that would be the one in the first year that we talked about last time. I was going to say last week, but was not last time we were here. So we're back with Belshazzar. Um, so yeah, last time we saw him, he died. We're here again, uh, but we don't really care about him. Verse 2, I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa, in the province of Elam. I saw in this vision that I was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, Daniel is taken to this Persian river, okay, and uh, which is located about 220 miles east of Babylon, okay? Um, no reason is explicitly given as to why he was brought here. So we're not going to worry about it. Verse 3, I looked up, <laughs> and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. Okay? What we're going to see in here is that um, these horns are going to represent kings rather than kingdoms. Last time we talked about these beasts. These beasts represented a kingdom. We saw the statue. The different elements in the statue represented kingdoms. The horns on these beasts are going to represent rulers themselves, okay? So when it talks about two horns that came up, one being bigger than the other, that would signify uh, two rulers, one being uh, more prominent than the other. Um, and so uh, horn creatures like rams and goats, I wrote this down, we'll see um, in this passage rely on strength and power of their horns for both defense and conquest, Okay, so a ram or a goat wants to vie for a lady's affections. He's going to smack another ram or a goat as hard as he can with his head. Not that dis different from teenage guys, honestly. Like, it's really, <laughs> we're pretty close to the animal kingdom. But <laughs> it's, 
that's what they would do. They would just, I got a bigger bone on my head than you, so I win. Um, I'll take the lady, you can take a hike. Uh, that was kind of the, <laughs> that's kind of how rams and goats worked. So you needed the bigger horn. You needed the bigger horn. A uh, ram's horn signified its power, its strength, its ability, okay, for both defense and conquest. Notably, sheep, goats, horned creatures, all of them are only as strong as the horns on their head. They are only as strong as the horns on their head. And I find that fascinating because in this case, again, these horns represent rulers. Whether this was an intended point or not, this is a strong reminder to me at least that we are only as strong as who or what we follow. We're only as strong as who or what we follow. If it can be broken, we can be broken. Okay? To me, this is a um, strong reminder to point those I care about towards Christ. I don't want people to follow me. I've done that in the past. Do this, because I do it this way. And then I failed. And I did more damage than good, because I am breakable. I'm very breakable. Very, very fragile. In fact, Scripture rightly describes me and you and all humans as fragile jars of clay. There's a reason for that. We're very breakable. As we're going to see, all these horns, even though they're revered throughout history, some of them, all very breakable. Even the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, and I do need to apologize so that the slide guy doesn't think... Um, He's behind or something. I don't have slides because I grossly underestimated this chapter <laughs> and was up way too late <laughs> trying to finish my notes. So I didn't do slides. So sorry about that. But in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, you can look it up or you can trust me. Uh, Paul says this, imitate me as I also imitate Christ, which is actually another way of saying only imitate Christ. It's the same thing as saying that because he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, which is to say, if I'm not imitating Christ, don't imitate me. In other words, only imitate Christ. That's actually what he's saying, if you take it to the logical extent of that. Paul himself, I love that, only point people to Christ. That should be our, our goal. Christ alone cannot be broken off. In fact, God's kingdom is the only kingdom that will not be broken, as Mike mentioned, an everlasting kingdom. Verse, um, verse 4 described... Last, in last chapter, verse, verse 4 described Jesus' reign as an everlasting kingdom. It's the only one. All other kingdoms will fail. Even scientists believe that the entire universe will someday, see, someday cease to exist. No matter who you are, everybody believes that every kingdom will fail at some point. Jesus alone will have an everlasting kingdom. Verse 4. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. So this ram is recorded as having no competition that could stand against him. Notice it attacks west, north, and south. Didn't mention east. Didn't mention east. That's important. We'll see why later. That gives some um, historical credit to the interpretation of this dream, and we'll see why. Verse 5, as I was observing, a male goat appeared coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous uh, horn between his eyes. Conspicuous, just like inconspicuous, the opposite of it. Um, very prominent, very obvious, glaringly obvious horn between his eyes. A single horn, which would be unusual for a goat. Uh, notice that this horn is singular, so this kingdom will only have one ruler. 
in charge at the time that this goat conquers. There will only be one ruler. Verse 6, he came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him. He struck the ram, breaking his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Two rulers, both very much breakable, are broken, leaving the kingdom vulnerable to the onslaught of this goat. Verse 8, then the male goat acted even more arrogantly. But when he became powerful, the large horn was also broken. I added also, the large horn was broken. Four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. And again, as a reminder, those horns being rulers, that means four rulers came up. Single horn, very powerful, still very breakable. But notice that nothing is recorded as having broken the single horn. Single horn was not broken by another animal. It was not broken by um, seemingly anything. It was just merely broken, and then there were four. So we'll see why in a little bit in the interpretation. From uh, verse 9, from one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensively towards the south and the east, towards the beautiful land. Now, beautiful land, um, or your Bible might say glorious land, um, is a word used to describe Israel twice more later in Daniel chapter 11. It's also been used to describe Israel in Ezekiel chapter 20 and 25. So glorious land or beautiful land used not crazy often, but often enough in Old Testament for us to know that it is referring to Israel. Verse 10, it grew as high as the heavenly army, made some of the army and some of the stars fall to the earth and trampled them. It acted arrogantly, even against the prince of the heavenly army. It revoked his regular sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. In the rebellion, the army was given up together with the regular sacrifice the horn threw to the ground and was uh, threw truth to the ground and was successful in what it did. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, "How long will the events of this vision last? The regular sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, and the giving of the sanctuary and of the army to be trampled." He said to me, "For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored." So this little horn that will emerge from one of the four will grow up and do some things that the others didn't, okay? The others were completely um, interested in dominant military. Um, they want to take over land. That was their goal. They're kind of um, marching through the whole earth. Greece, as we know, that's what the, that's what the uh, single horn uh, goat is going to be. Greece, of course, flew through and took over the entire modern known world at the time very, very quickly. That's been kind of the goal of these beasts at this time. But this extra horn that grew up did something a little different. Um, he will attack truth, it says. He will make war with God and will remove the regular sacrifice. He's coming after God and God's people specifically. Or he will. Very um, deliberately, evilly, and um, aggressively, he is going to come after God and God's people, and he's going to desolate the, uh, the regular sacrifice. So he has a bit of a different agenda. In verse 15, starting in verse 15, we get to see the interpretation. And it starts like this. While I, Daniel, was watching, 
and the vision trying to understand it, there stood before me someone who appeared to be a man. I thought it was interesting that he was trying to understand it. <laughs> He's watching this vision, trying to figure it out. Uh, typically, Daniel just waits for God's interpretation. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. I don't, but he's sitting there like, wow, it's good. goats, rams, like they're freaking out, horns everywhere, trying to figure it out. And then uh, there stood before me, he says, uh, someone who appeared to be a man. I heard the human voice calling from the middle of the Uli. That's the river that we talked about, the Persian River. Um, and it says, Gabriel, explain the vision to this man. Now, I want to point out, and I almost didn't bring this up, but I want to point out because I saw far too many passages that address this. There are some who believe that the voice coming from the middle of the river is an Old, uh, Old Testament appearance of Jesus. There are people who believe that um, because he gives commands to Gabriel, and Gabriel being an archangel, there are not a whole lot of people who give archangels commands. So um, a lot of people believe that this is Jesus because he, again, because he gives a command to Gabriel and because he seems to be standing in the middle of the river as if standing on water and they want to paint this really cool picture, which by the way, would be a really cool picture. It'd be really cool. Like the, the idea of Jesus standing on water before he walked on water as a man, giving commands to the archangel is really cool. But the passage doesn't give us enough details about that. And I saw far too many people online spending all of their time arguing that this must be Jesus or this can't be Jesus or back and forth. And it's total nonsense. It misses the point. The point of this passage of this particular spot is the interpretation of the dream. It's not about the voice coming from the middle of the, of the river. It's kind of a moot point. So that's the only reason I bring that up. What the passage is definitely telling us is the interpretation. Verse 17. So he approached where I was standing. That'd be Gabriel. Uh, after being told to go explain the vision. When he came near, I was terrified and fell face down. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. While, I was, while he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep uh, with my face to the ground. Then he touched me, made me stand up, and said, I am here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath because it refers to the appointment of the time of the end. This passage cracks me up. Okay, And especially for those of you who have ever been in my youth group, you know that every time an angel appears, it cracks me up because somebody freaks out. Like, every, they freak out every time. It's like a total fear, collapse. And so you, you picture the scene, and Gabriel approaches Daniel. And tell me if you've heard this one before. I was terrified and fell face down. Uh, important to note, though, he doesn't start worshiping, which happens often. He doesn't start worshiping, which is important to note, um, because Gabriel wouldn't be allowed to accept worship. He would tell him to stop worshiping. He doesn't say that. He's not worshiping. He's falling down in fear. And not only that, what's worse, he falls asleep. <laughs> he falls asleep. Gabriel's like, all right, I got to tell you these things. Son of man. <laughs> like, uh, Daniel, <laughs> I've come to tell you about the time of the end. Are you sleeping? <laughs> like, like this. To me, it cracks me up. This scene's hilarious. Like, falls down. You, uh, like, I picture like a parent talking to their kid, and the kid's just face down. Like, look at me. And then all of a sudden, they're asleep. Are you sleeping? I'm talking. Get up. Like, I don't. Know, to me, it cracks me up. Uh, but um, I'm reading far, far much into this. Obviously, uh, Gabriel is a sinless angel. Message of the Lord. He was not. Um, he was not snappy. He was not irritated. He just calmly touched Daniel, had him stand, and then patiently explained to him the vision. So what's the time of wrath in the time of the end that it references there? 
What does that mean? We'll find in a minute. Um, so we'll put that on the back burner. But I want you to think about that because that's something that people have misconstrued to be end times, have been obsessed with, and it has caused this huge divide. I'm like slowly trying to think of how to word this because this is this is the main part that people get very confused about in this passage. This is the main part that people argue about in this passage. And um, it makes it for a very highly contested chapter in the Bible. Um, and there's a lot of much wiser men than me that would argue it both ways, and there are much wiser men than me that wouldn't argue it at all. So um, take cautious steps into it. But he specifically talks about an end time and a time of wrath. So we'll go through more slowly, and we'll look at that. Verse 20, the two-horned ram that uh, you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. So this is the interpretation of the dream. Now, remember that the ram was noted for the proportions of its two horns, right? One was higher than the other. So the angel saying that this is going to be the Medes and the Persians, this would be accurate historically, okay? Uh, Because the partnership between the Medes and the Persians, the Persians were larger and stronger in the partnership, okay? Not only that, they emerged after the Medes. So this is very accurate. They came up later, they grew bigger. That was just historically true. The ram was said to be pushing westward, northward, and southward. The Medo-Persian Empire extended its power um, to the Scythians in the north, the Egyptians to the south, and the Greeks to the west. It took territory but made no major conquest towards the east. No major conquest towards the east. So again, this is incredibly accurate to the point where people discredit Daniel because they say this is too accurate. It could not have been written years and years before it happened. It's impossible. It's just too accurate. The Persians in particular were associated with the ram's head, which is interesting. Uh, the ram was the national emblem of Persia. It was stamped on Persian coins, um, as well as the headdress of Persian emperors. So not only is it signifying them in the vision, they literally wore this stuff. The ram was their symbol. Imagine the first time that Daniel saw a Persian coin with a ram stamped on it. Like that, that, like that would make my spine chilled. Like that would give me, that would freak me out. It would be the, I mean, I would know that it came from God and obviously I knew from the vision, but it, but seeing that coin with that ram's head stamped on it after seeing the vision of the ram coming and doing all like that had been wild. I've never been given a vision and that would be a crazy strong, um, revelation of it. Last time I spoke on Sunday morning, I covered the end of Belshazzar at the hands of the Medes and the Persians. That was who killed him um, shortly after the writing on the wall. That's actually who came in. And so that's the first kingdom that's going to come up with the two horns. I find it interesting that Daniel saw this vision before the writing on the wall. He certainly knew very well what was going to happen that night. And I remember at the time noting that Daniel's while Daniel gave accurate information, there wasn't this warm. He told Belshazzar everything he needed to know. Belshazzar had the information to do what was right. And yet there was almost a sense of Daniel wasn't really pushing him. And maybe it's because he knew that Belshazzar was, he didn't have a good relationship with him. He wasn't good. He wasn't going to do it. But it almost seems like there was this weight and gravity and heft to it that Daniel already knew what was going to happen. He already knew the kingdoms that were going to come in. He knew this very well before that. Moving on to verse 21, we see the next beast uh, that's described. Verse 21 says, This shaggy goat represents the king of Greece. 
And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. So who's the first king? I just skipped my notes. There we go. The first king refers to the first king of Greece, who we know to be Alexander the Great. We've covered that. He was a um, ferocious flying feline thing in the whatever. <laughs> I, don't remember. I did not mean to do like every first F, but that was interesting. Uh, <laughs> which would explain why the goat was flying through the air and without touching the ground. Again, rec- uh, referring to the incredibly fast way in which uh, Greece conquered the world. They just did it like lightning fast. Um, history tells us the Greek Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire greatly hated each other. That was, uh, which explains the goat attacking the ram with savage fury. It says in verse six, talk about how savage fury he attacked. Um, they greatly hated each other. And in fact, historically, uh, most historians believe that those were some of the most violent, uh, wars that were ever fought in history. Um, they'll point to that. So, um, they were also known as the goat people for at least 200 years before Daniel's time. So this was a kind of thing where in the vision, um, depending on who had the vision, someone might even recognize, oh, that goat probably represents Greece. Because for 200 years, they've already been the goat people. That's been their thing, their emblem, their emblem. If there was an eagle in a vision right now, most people would think of America. And so it's, you know, it's possible. Um, but judging by the fact that he was having a hard time discerning it, I'm assuming he doesn't know they were the goat people. But the goat was a common representation in the Greek empire. Um, Guzik notes something about the Greek empire that I never considered before, and I thought this was really cool before we move on from them. Along with Alexander's total dominance came one very special thing, a common language of Greek. Greek. Having a common language made it so much easier for the early church to spread the gospel. And now we have, um, of course, the New Testament, which was brought to us in Greek. So it's actually, you just get to see this cool little speck of just a beautiful thing that God makes out of a terrible thing. Moving on to verse 22. The four horns that took the place of the broken horn represents four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without its power. We know from history that these four kingdoms uh, were ruled by Cassander, ruling over Greece and its region. I'm going to butcher these names. Lysimachus, ruling over Asia Minor. Seleucus, ruling over Syria and Israel's land. And uh, Ptolemy, ruling over Egypt. Okay, those are the four rulers. We know from history this to be true. Verse 23 says, Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne. And this is the little horn that grows out of the one of the four. And this is our most prominent and interesting character, and this is the one that is hotly debated. This is the one that I think will see parallels the Antichrist. Some people will say he is the Antichrist. If you read it in context, that can't be true, but um, hotly debated. Verse 24 says this, His power will be great. So this little horn, will. his power will be great but it will not be his own. It's not his own power. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. By the way, last week, or I keep saying last week, last time we were in Daniel, like three weeks, two, whatever it is, we talked about the holy people. (laughs) Do you guys remember who the holy people were? his own people. Jesus is God's own people. Uh, That doesn't just mean Jews. It means anybody who believes on God's name. 
So he's going to attack the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, verse 25, through his cunning and by his influence, and his own mind will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of, of um, princes, yet he will be broken, not by human hands. This description is very, it's very obvious why people correlate this to the Antichrist. Sounds a lot like him. But he grew up straight out of Persia, or uh, Greece, sorry, out of one of the four horns. So this can't be the Antichrist. The timeline doesn't add up. And it clearly also lines up, not just with the Antichrist, but with one of the most infamous characters in Jewish history, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Really, it's Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He added Epiphanes, and we'll see why. <laughs> Mike's laughing, yeah, 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 he added that. Antiochus IV assumed the title Epiphanes, meaning illustrious, and alluding to deity. The ancient Jews twisted his name into um, Epimanes, I think is how you say that, meaning madman. There's a reason why they called him madman. Um, every now and then I'll listen to, for news, I'll listen to uh, Ben Shapiro. And he's actually referenced this guy twice, just listening to him talk. Um, there's, there's a great desolation that this man does that is still talked about in the Jewish community today. It is, he is still one of the most hated um, and uh, reviled men in history for the Jewish people, and we'll see why. In the latter time of their kingdom, it says, the prophecy in this passage reads equally true of both and uh, Tychus and the Antichrist. This is an example of a prophetic passage that has both a near and a far fulfillment. So he parallels, he parallels the Antichrist, um, and, and it's, it's very strong parallel here. I'm going to go through some of these things. It, it records him as having fierce features. Antiochus Epiphanes was known for his cruel brutality. This will also be true of the coming Antichrist. Uh, it says, who understands sinister schemes through his cunning. Antiochus was known for his flattery and smooth tongue. Uh, the coming Antichrist will strike a covenant with Israel. So we see a parallel there. It says his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Antiochus Epiphanes was empowered by Satan and allowed by God. The same will be true of the coming Antichrist says that he shall prosper and thrive. Antiochus Epiphanes looked like a total success. The coming Antichrist will look like a complete winner until God topples his reign. It says he shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Antiochus Epiphanes not only destroyed the enemies, his enemies, but also harshly persecuted the people of God. The coming Antichrist will also destroy and persecute. And then it says that he shall uh, cause deceit to prosper. Both the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes in the past and of the Antichrist in the future are marked by deceit. And it says he shall exalt himself in his heart. Uh, the coins of Antiochus Epiphanes were inscribed with this um, this title, Theos Epiphanes, meaning God manifest. God manifest. What a stud. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and the coming Antichrist will also exalt himself. Talks about how he's going to rise against the prince of, of princes. We know that. He's going to be broken without human means. God is the one who will tear down. And he, uh, therefore, uh, it mentions, it says, therefore, seal up the vision, and Daniel must do this because in his day, the vision referred to the period far distant in its ultimate fulfillment. For us, though, for us, though, the time is near because the book has been unsealed. The book has been unsealed. For more on that, read the book of Revelation. 
but we have more on that than he did. Antiochus' suppression of the Jews came to a head in December of 168 BC when he returned in defeat from Alexandria. He ordered his generals to seize Jerusalem on Sabbath. There he set up an idol of Zeus and desecrated the altar by offering of swine and sprinkling the pig's juices in the sanctuary. Sacrifice stopped because the temple was desecrated. Vile, vile, evil man got his butt kicked by Alexander and threw a fit. He took it out on the Jewish people when he got back. Not only that, he desecrated their holy place by, by spilling swine fluid all over the place, which, of course, pigs being unclean to the Jewish people. And this gives us insight into verse 26, which says, The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. Now you are to seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. Remember that the vision said that this desecration would last for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be restored. Now there are two possible meanings for this. Uh, time frame. The first and most likely, I believe, again, this is a highly debated thing, is that it means 2300 days. And the reason why is because um, the date when the temple was cleansed is well, is well established as December 25th, 165 BC. So if we count back from that time, okay, 23 days from then, we come to the year when Antiochus Epiphanes began his persecution in earnest in 171 BC. So that makes the most sense. This desolation that was supposed to end at the end of 2300 years, um, if you count backwards, it would make sense that that would be the beginning of Antiochus Epiphanes' uh, persecution of the Jews. The other argument is, um, the hard thing about this is the other argument is also plausible. <laughs> the other argument is that by saying mornings and evenings, he's combining the two. There's two. There's a morning and an evening in a day. So if you put a morning and an evening in a day, which is when the uh, sacrifices, daily sacrifices would happen, you get exactly one half of those days because there's two to a day, right? A morning and an evening in every day. So if you add up 2,300 morning and evenings together, you actually get 1,150 days, okay? That would land you in the time of the Maccabean um, Revolution, which at the end of which is when they cleanse the temple. So there's it's possible, but because of the context, and I go back to the context, the reason why I believe the 2,300 days is more accurate, because we're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes and the way he started this desolation. So it would make more sense to count from his start of the desolation to the time the temple was cleansed. So that's why I use that as my um, what I believe to be true. This all points to the parallels between Antiochus and the Antichrist. He has the same heart as the Antichrist, which is guided by Satan. Make no mistake, this is evil, and this is guided by the enemy, our enemy. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with princes and principalities. We see parallels here because it's the same influencer. It's the same one. And finally, verse 27. It's funny, this passage when I was studying it, they were talking about how this passage is a dreamland for a uh, teacher, Bible teacher, like out of college, and a nightmare for a preacher. <laughs> because it's basically, it's basically all these details and, and stuff, but there's not a whole lot of preaching to be done. Um, but we get one verse. We get one verse that relates 
makes this so relatable to us and and to me has been hitting me around so much lately um, as, as some big things have been happening in, in me and Kami's life. This last verse, verse 27, hits me really hard. And um, God did that on purpose. Um, me and Mike don't plan these things. I we just I'm up here to teach when I can, and this is how it happens. Verse 27 says this, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. Daniel's whole life, his whole life has been focused on the Lord. He has lived his life as an example to his people, pointing them towards Israel, pointing them towards the Holy Land, pointing them towards God, three times daily praying towards the temple, every day, his whole life. That's what he's been looking forward to and working towards, the restoration of his people. And he cannot bear the vision that he was just given. Not only is it bad, it's going to get worse, and then it's going to get so bad, they're directly persecuted by this type of antichrist and the temple is going to be desecrated. It's such a heavy, horrendous weight for his shoulders. And I can relate to this idea of being overwhelmed by things um, myself. Me and Kami are um, now pregnant with our first kid, and <laughs> and uh, we just found out <laughs> that it's uh, he's going to be a boy. He's, a, he's going to be our son. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of wanted a daughter, but, you know, I do trust God's judgment. So, <laughs> so if I'm being honest, but God, you know, I trust God's judgment. But here's the thing. Today I gleam with joy at the thought of our first kid, but not long ago, and I mean really not very long ago, I was really struggling with this. I was really struggling with this, and I really wanted to bring this up because I've talked to a few parents who feel the same way, young parents or, or people who are going to be parents soon. I looked around at our country, and I looked around at our world, and, um, and what it's becoming. And I realized I didn't have much hope for it. Not for the world, not for the country. I really don't. Um, I don't want my son to be raised in a world where abortion is celebrated in the U.S. and mandated on women in China, where suicide rates outpace most death rates. I didn't even know you were going to talk about Japan today. I didn't even know about that. Suicide rates outpace most death rates, especially in first world countries, which is crazy. I don't want my son to live in a world where people love to destroy their relationships with people they love because of an addiction to the porn industry. So my son's going to grow up in. He's going to access all of that. The first time he has a device in his hand, immediate access. I don't want to live in a world where pandemics are commonplace, where political fighting is commonplace. I don't want my son to be raised in a world filled with violence, drugs, and man buns. <laughs> I wrote in there, make sure Nate knows I still love him. And that was a joke. That was a joke. If Rob was up here, he'd say skinny jeans. Like, listen. <laughs> It was a joke. I almost, I almost had a man bun once. Um, then I got saved. But anyway, like, <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, man. 
I was telling KB, I was like, this is so heavy for me, and it's going to be so heavy for some people. I know that I have to break the tension with some humor, so I'm going to pick on my, my buddy Nathaniel, who I know can take it, because he knows I love him. But I really actually have had sleepless nights um, thinking about this, and I've got a, a dear friend who lives over in Seattle who we talk about this. He has two, two young ones, and, um, and we talk about this. What's going to be like to raise our kids in this world? in this America. But then I remember how Christ lived and died. And every time I'm down, I come back to this central thing, which is the cross and Christ crucified. Because here's the thing. In perfect submission to the Father, Christ was led to a cross where he was crucified for our sin, sin of the whole world, and how he was raised to life again, victorious over death. He won. Jesus won. He completely won, 100%. The battle is already over. This world's not winning. Death has already lost. The battle is already over, and greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. And you have nothing to fear, and I have nothing to fear, and my son someday will have nothing to fear if he has God in his life. That's the real world we live in. Sometimes we just forget that. And by sometimes, I mean almost always. We live in a world that has already been decided in victory for Jesus. And that's what's got me to the point that Corey Ten Boom talks about. She said, some knowledge is too heavy. You cannot bear it. Your father will carry it until you are able. And God's been holding on to that knowledge for me until finally he gave it to me. And I know there's somebody in this room or online who needs to hear the same thing. Jesus won. He is the victory. And he is the reward. We're going to see him in heaven. If our body dies here on earth, we're just going to go straight to him. And then for all eternity, which we can't even comprehend in the scope of life and time, we can't comprehend that. This is such a blip. It's such a blink. And then it's eternity with a perfect Father in heaven forever. If there's knowledge that is too heavy in your life to bear, it could be something totally different. Everybody has their own struggles. There is knowledge in your life that is too heavy to bear. I encourage you guys to look to the cross. Look to how Christ lived and how he died. And be strengthened. Let's pray. Lord, you've changed my life with single verses. You do it all the time. Simple little thing at the end of this prophecy has encouraged me so much. And I just pray and ask um, a desire that this would encourage um, this body that I get to be a part of, this family that I get to be with, um, that someone will be encouraged by this today. uh, To be strengthened in you by looking to what you did for us. It's all your power, not our own. Thank you for bringing us all back together again. I have been missing this so bad. So bad I've missed everyone in this room. To fellowship with your body um, in perfect unison because of Christ's work is just the most blessed thing. So thankful to be here. Pray for all those who aren't able to be here with us today. Lord, as you put her on my mind, I pray for Claudia today. And just thinking... 
now I've experienced a little taste of how she's been feeling quarantined for all that time and now I've been there with her. I pray that you'd encourage her today. I hope she's able to um, spend time with a fellow believer um, or watch, uh, watch a service online today. Encourage her if you would, Lord. Encourage us as we go out so that we can take your light to our loved ones and encourage them. We ask this in your name. Amen.